Hey, good morning. Good to see everybody. Smiling faces. So fun. Love it. Um, I'm, my name is Jeff, if we haven't met yet. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going wa- to walk through the announcements because I have a bunch. I'm going to do one announcement, and then I'll dismiss the kids. Uh, but I, I want the kids to hear this, too, because this is kind of cool. This comes from our youth group. Um, Kyle said, a cool family of a couple of our students let the youth group know about a, an opportunity, you could say. Um, they're going to ask that you would bring in or drop off your gently used adult-sized non-stretchy jeans at Crossview before July 1st. Uh, there are, there, this provides, the, what they do is they use the denim, the material from the denim, to make shoes for kids in Uganda. Um, and apparently there's a crippling problem associated with parasites entering through the bare feet of these kids in Uganda. So if you want to learn more, I'll do my best to read off this website. It's www.soulhope.org, S-O-L-E, soul, H-O-P-E, soulhope.org, if you want to learn more. But the big thing is if you have jeans, bring them in and donate them if you're not wearing them. And you will bless kids in Uganda, and our youth group will lead us in that mission. So, With that, I'm going to dismiss our kids. You can head out that door right there. Parents, if you want to walk the kids out there, if that's easier, whatever works. Terry and Paul, who are amazing, are going to be ministering to our kids this morning. And I, again, I have a few more announcements that I want to share. Obviously, I mean, we've turned a corner, if you will, in this pandemic journey that we've been on together. Um, and so I want to just say a few things. We're, I don't know that I can say we're going back to the way it was before the pandemic, because I don't even know <laughs> how to get back there. But we're heading to a new normal, I guess, and we're going to try to get there as, as healthy as we can. I want to say clearly, um, I see a lot of faces, which is really fun. But if, if you're in a situation where you're still wearing a mask, it's totally okay. <laughs> Masks are welcome. I mean, cloths, piece of cloth is not going to define our identity as the body of Christ. If you're watching at home and you're still wearing a mask and you didn't know if you, you can still come and wear a mask, hopefully we're a good a mixture. We'll talk about unity and diversity this morning and Hopefully we can figure that out together. We will be doing outdoor services, but I think we'll probably transition to where we'll plan a little bit more, let you know in advance when we're going to do an outdoor service. And then if for some reason the weather doesn't work that week, we just will, we just will miss the outdoor service that month. But based on somewhat Matt's schedule and, and things going on in our church, I think our next outdoor service will aim for July 4th um, is the plan. So you can put that down, a 10 o'clock service July 4th. And I will say... Normally, we'll go back to two services inside, but because it's a holiday, <laughs> I just have a feeling one service will be fine. So we'll plan on being outside July 4th, 10 o'clock. There's some people in our church who, who can really still only come or are only comfortable coming to outdoor services, and some of you still love the outdoor service, so it's great. But if it gets canceled outside, we'll be inside just one service at 10 o'clock on the 4th of July. So a couple other things. We have a congregational meeting tonight at 4 o'clock. We'll be talking about lots of stuff. It shouldn't be a super long meeting, I don't think. But if you want to live stream, I think you can click on the live stream. for our, If you did it at home today for the, ser- for the service, you can do the same thing tonight for the congregational meeting if you want to live stream. I just want to let you know we're going to end that time by celebrating stories of grace. God, God, things that God has done in the last year. That I know some of these stories. Not everybody in our church knows all these stories. So if you come tonight and you're willing to share something God did that was amazing, uh, we'd love to hear from you tonight. 
Um, next week is baptism, so we have four people. We haven't figured out service times exactly yet. We either have two and two or all four at one service, but we're baptizing four people next week, which is awesome. And I've been kind of saying to people, I think as we turn this corner and we have an opportunity to be together again in ways that we haven't, some people again were at church for service today that haven't been here in a long time, so it's just fun to be reconnecting with people. But I want to create space for us to just connect, right? So we're doing Sunday schools. They'll be during the 1045, just one class during the 1045 service. Kyle and Barb are going to lead the first one. It'll be like rotating leaders. Well, I think Kyle plans to meet outside at the tent if the weather's nice. Otherwise, he'll let you know where you're, where you're meeting. But you can come to one. You can come to all of them. The whole point is let's be together. Let's share life together. Um, so if you want to do that, you want to come to the nine o'clock service. That's great. And then I'm doing these community nights that I'm starting on Wednesday, June 23rd. I'm going to do five or six. Again, I just want to give us space to be together, to minister to one another, and to keep Jesus central as we do this. So you can come to one, you can come to all of them. I'll explain what we're doing every night, we'll, but we'll be doing, we'll be talking a lot with each other is the goal, reconnecting. And then the last thing I will share, and then I'll pray, um, is some of you know, Myron and Marie Bond, uh, Myron was at our first service today, Marie passed away this week, she's been dealing, I mean actually she kind of was a miracle story, she was told she had two months like three years ago and then this tumor just vanished <laughs> and she lived a few more years, uh, we actually, um, actually through the ministry of some people in our church, she came to Christ and we baptized her here, uh, if you were here for that, it was like my worst baptism ever because she's in a wheelchair, and I was pouring water on her and trying to get her hair, and somehow dumped it all down her front, and she squealed because it was cold, and I was like, oh man, I'm a dumb pastor, but anyway, Marie was a sweetheart, and she's with Jesus now, so we, there's more, more information on celebrating her life later, but if you know Myron and Marie, if you want to reach out to them, or just pray for Myron, Marie's doing great right now, I'll tell you that, she's doing great, uh, but the rest of us miss her, so let's pray. Uh, Jesus, would you meet us where we are today? Um, I, think, I hope we come just able to confess that we're not who we want to be. And maybe if we think about who you're calling us to be, inviting, we're, just, we're not even who we, we need to be. <laughs> um, and there's so much grace, there's so much love, there's so much mercy and Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to each one of us, meet us where we are, and lead us into pastures. Lead us next to streams of flowing water. Lead us into your life, good shepherd. Amen. Well, we are going through, we've been going through, I don't have a fancy story for you this morning, because we're, I'm going to just kind of jump in, but we're going through this letter, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul planted a church in Corinth, and he's writing to them after, about five years probably after he planted the church, and it's around the year 55, so that tells you how old this letter is, and we've been journeying through it. Uh, Paul's been trying to shepherd to lead this church, and he started out uh, addressing a lot of things that they didn't want Paul to know. Paul found out from Chloe and some of her friends what was happening at the church in Corinth. And I've entitled the series, What Just Happened? Because if you've been with us, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, if you just go back and read the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians, 
you might be surprised at some of the things that Paul chooses to discuss that this church was kind of wrestling through. And we're kind of in a new section. We'll be in uh, uh, the next few weeks, 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14. Paul is going to be giving them instructions for worship. Uh, when they gathered, they, were, they would have been a much smaller gathering than our Crossview Church in a much smaller place, probably more much a house church when they gathered. It would have looked very different. And Paul is trying to give them instructions, and we'll be working through these instructions the next few weeks of how Paul is shepherding them and leading them. But we're going to talk about cultural um, realities, cultural differences a bit today. It's really important as we engage this next section. And I've had the privilege of traveling much of the world, actually a lot of, I've I've seen a lot of the world. I've rarely on vacations, it's almost always a missions trip, so I'm always with a community of believers and find myself at a church in another country, sometimes another language. And I've learned that churches look very different in different places. That's one of the beauties of the gospel is that the gospel can connect with anybody wherever they are. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus can, can we, we can gather around Jesus and worship him and, and we bring some of the best of our diversity as we express our different cultural makeups. The other beauty of the gospel is it critiques every culture it encounters. That there's, we're longing for the kingdom of God and so the kingdom of God comes to all of us in whatever culture we are and calls us to repentance and forgiveness and, and so much more. And as I've traveled the world and just, just being a pastor, knowing what's going on, I find it amazing and inspiring and encouraging to know that Jesus is compelling everywhere. In every tongue, in every nation, in every people group. There are people, even right now as we worship around the world, People are gathering to learn about Jesus, to encounter Jesus, to to find satisfaction, to find healing, to confess and repent of their sins and to find forgiveness, to, to learn their true identity, their true self, who they are, to know what love looks like and feels like and really is, not this shadow version, but the real, authentic Jesus version of love all around the world. People are gathering to encounter Jesus, and it looks different. Now, we look very different. Even in America, you could go to churches that are maybe a little bit more rowdy than we are on a Sunday morning, right? I mean, we just, different cultures express their worship in different ways. And Paul is going to be in these next few chapters trying to help this church in Corinth express themselves in worship in ways that bring honor and glory to God. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. I'm doing this morning a little bit different. I think you'll understand why. I think it's worth doing, but it's going to take me a few minutes. I'm going to probably go about 20 minutes before we actually even get into the text. So hang with me. And I want to say to you, if you're here for the first time or joining us online for the first time, uh, the passage we're going to look at this morning is really tricky. It's really difficult. Not every passage is this tricky. So I'm going to leave a lot of unanswered questions out there for you and try to help you think through this on your own. And there's a lot that I, I just, I honestly, I simply don't know. One, somebody after first service said, was it empowering for you as a pastor to say, I don't know? I was like, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't, I don't have answers. I'm not trying to be empowering. I just don't really know. So, but not every chapter in the Bible is this tricky. This chapter is tricky. And, I, and I'm, again, I'm not saying this offhandedly, but as I was preparing for it, I was like, if I was really, I'm, I'm preaching, but if I was teaching, if I really wanted you to understand everything that I think is possibly going on, I would need like five hours because there's a bunch of different competing theories that hold what one, what one podcast guy said, explanatory power. 
There's a bunch of different theories, and they don't all line up at all. Like, that's why I'm like, I don't even, when I taught through the parables a few years ago, there's lots of different theories on a few parables, because Jesus is almost intentionally confusing. He wants us to wrestle with them. But I still got to a parable and felt like I can preach this way of this parable, because it makes sense to me. I might be wrong, but I can at least preach it. But with this chapter, I'm just telling you, there's just, I'm just, I'm going to be very careful in how I walk through and what I explain and don't explain. I, I would want a lot of time because I would want to lay out a, an idea and tell you the pros and the cons of this idea. I, I found myself, I just, I wanted to read one more chapter. Just give me one more author. Give me one more podcast to make sense of what's going on because it just wasn't, it just doesn't all come together. Actually, one of the commentaries I was reading, it, it, it kind of captured it well. The, the author, who I think is actually brilliant, was just like, perhaps Paul is saying this. And if Paul is saying this, then perhaps he's also saying this. And if he's saying this, then perhaps he's saying this. And in this verse, perhaps he's saying this. And he got to the end of like 10 sentences. That's a lot of perhapses, but that's as far as I can go. Or I was remembering, I think I said this at the very beginning of the series, but I was introduced really to a study of the Bible by cassette tapes. It was a seminary course taught by Gordon Fee. And he had been recorded right after he had finished writing a commentary, a giant book on 1 Corinthians. And he was talking about this commentary he had just written as he was teaching on 1 Corinthians. And he was, he was talking about all the stuff he learned and how excited he was. But I remember him saying, but it's annoying. Because as soon as it gets published, people are going to buy the book. And in my circles, people said it's the best commentary. <laughs> and he said, people are going to buy the book and immediately they're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <laughs> and they're going to see what I had to say about this chapter. It's the hardest chapter and I don't know what's going on. <laughs> And they're going to evaluate my commentary based on my thoughts on this. He wrote like 65 pages on these 15 verses. And he doesn't know what's going on. So I have no problem telling you. It's a tricky passage. But as I said, I'm going to take a little while before I get there. Because I want to do a little work. And I think it's okay. I think it's appropriate for me to do this. I, as I was approaching teaching this text, it, it was reminding me of why I ended up as an EFCA pastor. I don't talk a lot about our denomination. Our denomination is the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's a great denomination. But how did I end up? I didn't grow up in the EFCA church. How did I end up an EFCA pastor? I didn't plan on being an EFCA pastor. I grew up Lutheran, and I'm really thankful for my Lutheran heritage. I learned a lot in the Lutheran church. And I came alive to Jesus in a multi-denominational group of college students. That's where I really felt the call to vocational ministry in that setting. I I was telling first service, I went to a lot of churches when I was in college. Sometimes I went because my roommates were going. Sometimes I went because there was a cute girl at that church. Or sometimes I went because it was the only car ride I had when I was a college student. But I went to a variety of different churches and was kind of open and went off to do missionary work with this multi-denominational ministry. But I came back to America and missionary work, again, just reinforced how different a church can look in different cultural settings. But I came back because I was in love with my girlfriend at the time, Kami, and we got engaged and we got married and we thought we were going to go back overseas, but we wanted to go to seminary first. I needed, I, I needed a lot of work. I, told, I also told first service, I just kind of said this, but if you guys had heard my first sermon, you would have never called me to preach here. I, need, I needed a lot of work. And so we were looking at a couple of different seminaries, but ultimately ended up at Trinity in Chicagoland. It's our denomina- EFCA denominational seminary. Ended up there, pri- I'll, I'll give you a few reasons why. One of the main reasons was because we thought we were going back overseas and it was the closest to Ohio. We thought we want to be close to home if we're going to go to seminary and then go overseas. So we started there. 
But there were other reasons. In my circle, people who were influential in my life had this to say about Trinity, our denomination. I don't know if it's as true today as it was 15 years ago. It was really true 15 years ago. You can go to another seminary and read the books that the professors at Trinity are writing, <laughs> or you can just go to Trinity and learn from the professors themselves. There was, a, there was a degree of truth to that 15 years ago. And there was also, there's different seminaries that have different kinds of cultures. I think Trinity carries, and I'll, and I'll talk about this, the culture of our denomination. But there's some t- seminaries that are going to tell you what to think. They're going to tell you what to think, and Trinity, I was told, would teach me how to think. Honestly, that's what I wanted as somebody who was learning. I wanted to learn how. To, I didn't want to be told what to think. I wanted to learn how to think. And so those were important to me. And then the final thing, and this is, this is true of EFCA culture. This is the way I was taught it. But our denomination as a culture, what we try to do is major on the majors and minor on the minors. So what does that mean exactly? What are the majors? Well, On one level, the majors, I grew up in a Lutheran church, every Sunday we would either recite together the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. There you go. The Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, almost 2,000 years old, written in another continent in another language. If you want to know the majors, read those. I pray the Nicene Creed almost every day in my own prayer time. I mean, it's kind of what we view as orthodoxy for the global church. It doesn't matter your denomination. Those creeds will tell you the majors. But if you're not sure, if you want a little bit more than that too, I honestly, one of the things I love about our denomination is our statement of faith. We have these in the hallway or you can look it up online. Ten things that we believe. I think the statement of faith of the EFCA church is beautiful. In fact, this is what we cover if you're going to go through membership at Crossview. We just want you to understand the beauty of it. If you haven't read this for a while, I even sometimes try to think through my preaching ministry. Am I touching on our statement of faith, on the things that we say? These are the majors. This is what matters. We believe in the Trinity. We believe the Bible tells us the truest story of humanity. It's the Word of God. We believe Jesus is fully God and fully man. We believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection and the hope of life eternal. We believe in the church. I mean, these these are things we believe in. So the EFCA church, we major on the majors while we minor on the minors. Well, if you read through this, you're going to realize there's a whole lot of stuff that comes up in the church that doesn't get talked about here. And everything that's not talked about in here, we would probably say, those are the minors. So, for example, in our statement of faith, it says that we, we will practice, we value baptism. We're baptism, baptizing people next week. And we value communion. We're going to practice communion next week, too, again, because we're preaching on it. But, so it says we practice, but it doesn't, I, I said this last week, when it gets to some of these that we can call them the ordinances or the sacraments, we confess more than we can explain. So if you were with us last week, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you can read this on your own, but Paul will talk about the bread and the cup. And he says, as we participate in communion, as we receive the bread and the cup, we are, we are fellowshipping with Jesus. We are participating in the body and blood of Christ. But that's as far as Paul goes. He confesses that, he doesn't explain it. Well, well-meaning theologians in our church history have tried to go farther than Paul and explain what Paul only confessed. And it created a lot of problems. If you read through church history, some of our denominational splits happened over communion. So the EFCA says communion is important. Jesus commanded it. But we're not going to be super, we're not going to major on the minors. If you understand it a little bit differently, that's okay. There's some sacred mystery there. Or baptism. We're going to baptize four people next week. They're all believers. They're all old enough to know 
what it means to follow Jesus. But within the EFCA, you can baptize infants. We're just not going to argue about those things. We're not going to major on the minors. This is part of the ethos of our church. Well, I wanted to share with you one story that really helped me learn this in seminary. And I'm going to use some theological words. I hope it's okay. If you don't understand these words, it's okay. But as people have tried to make sense throughout the years, throughout church history, tried to make sense of the biblical narrative, sometimes they've tried to put things together through what we would call a, maybe a theological posture, or you could call it a theological system. There's more than two, but in my day in seminary, the two that got debated the most were Calvinism and Arminianism. So some of you know what that means, some of you don't. It's fine if you don't. But what I loved about Trinity is I could go to a school where I had professors who were Calvinists and professors who were Arminians, and that was okay. You know, denominationally, Presbyterians are primarily Calvinists, and Methodists are primarily Arminian. But in the FCA, we don't, we don't argue about that. We would say that's a minor, we're going to major on the majors, and we're not going to major on the minors. And in my own study, I had two professors, I've mentioned both of their names before, D.A. Carson, a prolific author. Uh, D.A. Carson would lean to the Calvinistic side. He taught me half of the New Testament, <laughs> And the other professor, some of you in here actually knew him, he's passed away, is Grant Osborne. He would lean to the Arminian side. He taught me the other half of the New Testament. <laughs> I learned a lot from both Dr. Carson and Dr. Osborne. Both, I mean, you Google their names or go to Amazon and just you can see the amount of literature that both of these men wrote to further the understanding of the Word of God. Just, just amazing servants in their own right and what they were called to in the kingdom. And I learned a lot from both Dr. Osborne and Dr. Carson, but this, 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 this experience that really taught me the ethos of the EFCA came in Dr. Osborne's class. So we were going through the Gospel of John and, and what Dr. Osborne liked to do, because not every student who comes to seminary is coming to learn, believe it or not. Some students already have it all figured out. <laughs> and they don't mind telling the professor that they already know all they need to know, and the professor might have things wrong, even though the professors have written like that much, you know. We're in Dr. Osborne's class, and Dr. Osborne liked, because this is the ethos of our denomination, to pass out a handout. He did this every year. And he had a list of, of verses that would support a Calvinistic reading of the Gospel of John. If you're a Calvinist, you read these verses, it supports a Calvinistic reading. And on the same handout, he had a list of verses that supported an Arminian reading in the Gospel of John, the same book. And Dr. Osborne's point was, let's, let's just be humble about this. Let's not, let's not get too worked up. Just know if somebody disagrees with you, they have a biblical reason. And, and this is a minor issue in the EFCA, and we're going to agree to disagree on some of this stuff. Well, one student was not happy about that. He was pretty worked up that Dr. Osborne was so content in just allowing students to decide for themselves. <laughs> and he got worked up in class. I remember the interaction. I totally remember this conversation. And he begins to kind of attack Dr. Osborne. And he can't understand. I mean, I remember him saying, you're an Arminian and I'm a Calvinist. Why are you not? I think I'm right and you think you're right. Why are you not trying to convince me that I'm wrong and you're right? And Dr. Osborne, who, again, has written, I mean, he wrote a book called The Hermeneutical Spiral. It's a textbook for studying the Bible. This man is educated. A profound moment for me. He looks at this student in front of the class and says, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. 
And I just thought, what? I, I don't know that I've seen that kind of humility <laughs> in a theological conversation very often. And then Dr. Osborne turned around, and I mean, I, I, the student didn't know what to do because he wanted a fight. And Dr. Osborne wasn't going to give him one. And then Dr. Osborne, with great grace, but also beautiful, uh, just a shepherd. He was a pastor professor. He said, you need humility. If, if you're going to serve the church, you need a little bit more humility around this issue. And I'll be honest, that, that taught me. That taught me something about the ethos of our, of our DNA as a denomination. Maybe you don't know much about it either, but that's something to celebrate, I think. That's the beauty of our denomination. And some of you know, Fridays, I come in here, I, I don't know, I'm a verbal processor, so I've done all my study, and I, I just kind of come in here, and I just close the doors, and I like to just kind of talk out, what am I going to say? I, I read through the passage out loud, and somehow it's really helpful for me to put things together. And while I was doing that this Friday, my sister called me. So I answered the phone. I, she doesn't call me all that often. I was curious. My sister does actually some similar work where humility is needed. She's a consultant for businesses. She goes in, and I guess what you could say is she works with the generations. And so she works with boomers and tries to help them understand what makes them boomers <laughs> and then tries to explain to them millennials. And then she works with the millennials at the same company and tries to help them understand what makes them millennials and then tries to help them understand the boomers. So that's what she does. That's actually really important work right now. And she was having a side conversation. She shared it with me Friday morning while I was working on it. So I'm like, I'm going to share this with our church because I think it brings this theological humility to a new level for us. But she was talking with one of the bosses at the company she was at, and they were having a side conversation about this year. And, and, and this guy just said to her, he said, you know, one of the things that's so hard about life right now is that everybody is a sharing their opinion as if it's fact. And he says, when everybody shares their opinion, again, we're not talking about the majors, we're talking about the minors. When everybody shares their opinion as if it's fact, I only have two possible responses. I either agree with you, and then we're of accord, or I'm wrong. And there's no, there's no humility. There's no room for listening. There's no room for question. There's no room for understanding we either go together because we already agree or we have to go our separate ways. I think that's part of what's pervasive in this polarizing co uh, culture that we live in. And I really think the church has something to offer. I mean, yes, we can scream from the rooftops, Jesus is Lord. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's not a negotiable, right? But there's so many other issues that we can listen and understand and approach with great humility. And I realize I'm making this point not connected to the biblical text, but I'm going to use as a benediction Philippians chapter 2. If, if you want to read what, what Paul has to say about humility, just read Philippians chapter 2. See if humility wasn't important to Paul in the churches. See if humility didn't matter to Paul. See if humility wasn't a characteristic of Jesus himself. So that's my long introduction. I told you a little unusual, but my long introduction. Now let's, you can turn if you want or Flip on your phones to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read verses 2 to 16. I'll just kind of work my way through it with a lot of unknown. But I think you'll see there's a couple things that I feel confident that I can say. And what I actually kind of hope to do is even help you see where the questions are and some of the decisions that need to be made if you're going to understand what's going on. 
But as I said at the beginning, this whole section is chapters 11 to 14. And when we get there, I'll try to make it clear. But the centerpiece of this section is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul's great, you could call it a hymn of love. I've preached on it before, probably a couple times, and I will preach on it again because I love it. But Paul is going to put 1 Corinthians 13 as the centerpiece of this whole section on gathering, on instructions for worship, because that's Paul's lens. I mean, on one level, Paul could just say, oh my goodness, you guys are fighting about this. Think about it through the lens of love. I mean, as a church, that's what I really, that's what we're trying to do. With all this mask stuff, I know we weren't perfect, but we're just trying to be loving. I mean, really, that's, I know, I know I've made mistakes as a senior pastor in this last year, but I can promise you this. In the midst of all my mistakes, I was aiming at love. <laughs> and you guys have been gracious. I mean, I mean, I, I just, but, but I'm just saying, Paul, I mean, when we gather together, we're aiming at love. That's the primary lens through which we look at everything. And that's going to be what Paul is going to be driving through as we go through this. And I think it'll be interesting, too, because in a sense, I said, you know, we're turning a corner because we, we can gather again in, in exciting ways. and We'll see what happens. But as we turn a corner, we're kind of restarting. We're rebooting, in a sense. And, and if something doesn't feel loving to you, let's have a conversation. We have a chance to maybe, maybe heal in some areas or maybe, maybe fix some things that were broken and we didn't know. Let's, let's talk. Let's be a family. Let's think about everything through the lens of love and let's move forward. I think... Jesus would be excited if we did that. Well, let's read these verses. Let's kind of talk about what's going on. And, and, as I, and again, if you've never read this chapter, you're going you're gonna to understand why I'm <laughs> prepping you for this. Here's one thing that I can say with absolute confidence. Paul is going to be talking about head coverings and nature and hair length. And I can say in agreement with every scholar that I read that this is a cultural situation in first century Corinth. In many ways unique to first century Corinth. And we just don't really know what was going on. I can say that with a high degree of confidence. Um, Verse 2, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So, I mean, Paul's just saying, I pass on these traditions. I, I like to say Christianity is a, is, a, is a handed down faith. It's passed on. We didn't invent this. If I ever say something to you that's brand new, and you, I mean, maybe you should be worried. This is a handed down faith. I'm not making this stuff up, okay? Verse 3, but I, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is one of the first decisions you're going to have to make. Paul is going to use this word head all the way through these verses. Sometimes he's going to be using it literally as our actual heads, and sometimes he's using it metaphorically. And one of the decisions that you have to make as you wrestle through this text in humility is there's there's two ways that that head can be understood metaphorically. It even kind of translates into the English language. But some people will translate head as as, as authority or hierarchical. And if you, if you translate it that way, it's going to impact how you read the rest of these verses. Other people translate it as origin or source, kind of like the head of a river, the source of a river. And if you translate it that way, it's going to impact how you read the rest of these verses. So you keep that in mind. That's one decision you have to make. And, and then Paul's even beginning to talk about this, the head of 
man is Christ and the head of a, of a wife is her husband. And, and then he's going to help you out by saying the head of Christ is God, which is kind of like I'm going to explain this metaphor by pointing to the Trinity, which is an even bigger mystery, so go for it, right? Like, thanks, Paul, that's awesome. Answer all my questions by pointing me to the mystery of the Trinity. I totally got it, right? Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So, <laughs> what? Well, that's what Paul says. Now, one of the things you need to know is that, and what we'll see, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's things going on in Corinth that don't really go on here. You'll see that as we go through these chapters in the next few weeks. Uh, you'll see that, uh, I mean, next week when they were doing communion, some of them are getting drunk. So that just tells you we do communion a little different, right? But, 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 but one of the ways that, that they worship, one of the, actually, you could maybe say the primary ways that they express themselves in worship were praying and prophesying. So another decision you have to make if you're going to understand this text is in chapter 11, is he only talking about the leaders of their gathering? Only the leaders need to cover or uncover their head. Or is he talking about everyone? That's a decision you have to make as you wrestle through the text. But we find out that men are praying and prophesying, but they need to do it with their head uncovered. If you were with us last week, we were outside. There were some guys who had baseball hats on outside while we worshiped. And it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's actually okay. You weren't violating. I don't think. I think Paul's talking about something that was happening that made sense to the first. I mean, the Corinthians would have known exactly what he's talking about, but we just don't. Verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So let me pause there because it's going to be really, really important when we get to chapter 14, which I'm going to have to wait a few weeks to get there. But, but notice... Praying and prophesying is a major expression of worship, and women are doing it <laughs> when their heads are cut. Now, again, we, we don't necessarily do that anymore. We didn't pass out bonnets to you ladies when you came in this morning. Corey's going to lead us in a song after I finish preaching, and her head's, her head's uncovered. <laughs> and we're going to hear her beautiful, melodious voice, right? So, again, I, you, you get a sense of how we handle this, and I think we're honoring Scripture but Paul's just dealing with a very specific situation. And again, I'm not even going to try to explain this. I actually, I, I mean, I could give you a few theories that hold some explanatory power, but they're all so different. I mean, but since it is the same as if her head were shaven, isn't it, right? You've all, all you women have thought, if I wear a hat or shave my head, it's the same, right? You've all thought of that. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Again, it's just, we just don't, I, again, I could tell you things. One of the podcasts that one of you sent me that was actually really interesting was dealing with medical documents of doctors in the first century. Fascinating, kind of a crazy theory, but a fa I mean, just, there's so many ways that scholars have tried to make sense, but we just don't have asked access to historically what was happening in Corinth that was causing all of this. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, before you get too worked up about that statement, um, let me just say as we begin to journey into this now, Paul is going to kind of retell the story of Genesis. And, and even how you understand the story of Genesis is going to impact a little bit in how you understand what Paul is doing here. But let me, let me set this up for you, because I think this is really believable and, and likely what happened. 
Um, Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 is going to make this radical statement that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. Right? The Jews always felt like they were the people of God and all the Gentiles were the pagans and the heathens and Colossians. Paul will give more clarity about how the wall, the, the wall of division has been torn down in Jesus and the cross. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. And part of the radical nature of the kingdom of God, of the message of Jesus, is how he was bringing about equality to all people. I haven't started on my sermon for next week, but I was reading a book not that long ago that was comparing the way Christians did the Lord's Supper with a common Roman meal. And the one of the things that I learned, and maybe we'll talk more about this next week, but in the Roman meal, where you sat for the meal reinforced your status in society. It was one of the ways that the Romans carried forth their hierarchical statuses. But at the Lord's table, that was all out the window. There was no status. A slave, someone with no, somebody deeply impoverished, could hold what you would maybe call the most. The, the, the most important seat of the table because there, just was, there was no status. None of that mattered. Women were viewed as property in some culture. It didn't matter. We're all equal. Jesus gave value to every, every single human being is made in the image of God. So you can imagine what Christians were doing were, were up and radical, revolutionary, countercultural. You can imagine a church is trying early on to figure out what does it mean to be this radical family that is so different than everything we knew before. In a world that didn't view the genders equally, what does it look like for men and women to view each other as equals before God? It's radical. I hope you feel that. So it would make sense that the church in Corinth was struggling. We don't know how to do this. So you've got some men, and you'll see as we go, you likely have some men who are like, well, Adam came first. We know what that means. Men. <laughs> and then I'll read through this. But you got, and you got some women who are like, yeah, but if you read through the creation account, it just keeps getting better and better. And the last thing made is women. <laughs> women, right? So, and Paul's like, come on. Come on, let's, let's work through this. So, so let's read these, these next few verses. For man was not made from woman. This is the Genesis story. But woman from man, right? Eve was made from the rib of Adam. Neither was man created for woman. Woman was created for man. We'll talk about that. Adam couldn't do the work of God alone. He needed a helper. He needed Eve. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And again, depending on how you understand what's going on, some people will, will read that and think, oh, symbol of authority because, because men have authority over women. Other people will read that and say, no, 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 no. That's because women have authority now. And so this is a symbol of her authority that she has. Again, it's interpretive decisions that we hold with humility, but we have to make. And he says, because of the angels, I don't have any. I honestly, no idea. No idea. I could tell you they're all, I mean, no idea. I don't know what he's saying. Deal with that, I guess, right? But Verse 11, nevertheless, and this is where we'll kind of pull some of this together. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So we are distinct... And in one sense, this head covering issue or length of hair issue in the first century was blurring the lines of male and female. That's as far as I feel like I can go this morning. 
It was blurring the lines of male and female. And Paul is going to say, no, male and female are distinct and unique and that diversity is beautiful. You know the creation account, Genesis 1. Male and female together are the image of God. Paul's going to say that. But we're, but we're dependent on one another. For as woman was made for man, right? So man, man came first. Eve came from Adam. But now every man is born of woman. So again, just, chill, just relax. <laughs> Don't worry about the order of things. All things are from God. And then I'll just finish these verses. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature, and again, that's, what does he mean by that? I, I read some interesting theories there. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her, her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. He's trying to help them navigate the beauty, the diversity of the two genders. But at the same time, he's reinforcing we are dependent upon one another. And again, behind this, I think, is the Genesis 2, Genesis 3 story. Adam is made, and he's placed in the garden to cultivate it, to care for it. In a sense, Adam is placed in the garden, and he is supposed, the rest of the world is not cultivated and cared for. And so God places him in the Garden of Eden and says, this is the Garden of Eden. This is what I want the world to look like. Now you go and you cultivate the rest of the world like this. You garden as I've gardened. You be my presence in the world. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and, and subdue it. Turns out Adam can't do that alone. He literally needs Eve to fulfill the commission of God. And I think that's part of what Paul's getting at. We need each other. Men and women, we need each other. We're different, we're unique, and part of our uniqueness reflects the beauty and the glory of God. It's for the glory of God in many ways, what Paul is saying here, that God has made us different. Men and women are fully equal, and we're dependent upon one another, but we're not necessarily interchangeable. There are real differences, and we should learn to live out our distinctions with great joy. It's a big part of what Paul is saying. And as I was thinking about this, um, even as I was prepping and doing all my study, it, I mean, even as I talk through this gender conversation, doesn't it open the door to the bigger gender conversation happening in our world today? I mean, I, the more I'm watching more TV shows and more movies and this gender conversation and gender identity is becoming a bigger and bigger deal. And, and to be honest, I mean, it's something that our church needs to be talking about if we're going to be a loving presence for Jesus in this world. Um, but I didn't want to, I, want, I was just, this text had enough in and of itself. It's, it's a conversation, maybe it's Sunday schools or other places, or maybe I'll preach on it sometime. But, but here's what I want to say. If, if, um, if you're interested in this gender conversation, I want to, I want to offer up a resource. Um, I mentioned Preston Sprinkle a few weeks ago, his book, People to be Loved. Uh, he also wrote a book called Embodied. Now, I haven't read the whole book, so I, can't say I agree with everything he says, but what I will say is in a, in a rapidly changing world around this conversation of identity, I think Preston Sprinkle is a helpful conversation partner. Let me say that. Because he's wrestling with grace and truth, and what he's going to do is really wrestle with what the Bible has to say about gender and male and female and some of the beauty of the distinctiveness of who God has called us to be. I think he does a good job of that. But he also has a way 
of engaging with people who aren't going to agree with him (laughs) in a way that even if they don't agree with him, they still feel seen and heard and loved. In other words, there's a way to engage in some of these conversations where after people are done talking, they feel dehumanized. And I would say, if we are loving people in the way of Jesus, People should always feel more human, not less human, after they've walked away from us. (laughs) You could say rehumanized. I don't know. But Preston Sprinkle, I think he does a good job of modeling that posture. You don't have to agree with everything he has to say, but I think it's a conversation if you want to engage in it, his book, Embodied. Check it out. I think Preston Sprinkle has been discipled by Jesus, and he's learning to see people the way Jesus sees people. I think that's a prayer that I can safely pray for all of us, that we would be the kind of people that see others as Jesus sees them. That's what Paul is asking for here. Men and women, see others the way, men, see women the way Jesus does. We could go into a whole host of ways that men miss miss see women, and, and women see men the way Jesus does, and men see other men, and women see other men. Let's see people the way Jesus sees them. It's discipleship. Let's learn that from Jesus. So let me wrap this up here. How do I want to bring this all together? The church is meant to be an alternative society that meets because of Jesus Christ. There's great unity and diversity. And in order to be that, we have to be humble people. And I can say across you, we want to be a people that major on the majors. We want to invite others into the dance of eternal love that is the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You, you join them in that dance of love, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change you forever. We want to be a people that has a standard of beauty. It's cruciform beauty. It's Jesus on the cross. It is co-suffering, self-sacrificial love. That's who we want to be. That's a major. That's a non-negotiable. We want to be a people who live with hope in a world of despair. We want to be a people who, guess what, isn't afraid of death. We're not afraid of death. Because we believe in the resurrection. Because we've, we've, we've been crucified with Christ and we've been resurrected with Jesus. We want to major on the majors. We want to take the church seriously. We want to do life together. We want to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to major on the majors. And I think as our state is opening up, right, this week in new ways, I think we're going to find ourselves with new missional opportunities. And we're going to have a lot to do. We're all like ready to do stuff. We've been locked up too long, right? But let me just say on the journey, as you have things to do, please continue. It's a big part of our discipleship pathway. Please keep an eye on who you're becoming. Because if you're doing a lot of stuff, but you lack love, Paul says you're doing nothing. If you're doing a lot of stuff, but you lack humility, you might not be seeing the world the way Jesus inhabits and sees the world. And I believe that if we can learn to love as Jesus loves, if we can be that alternative society here as the church at Crossview, people will want to be here. Because this last 16 months has stirred the pot for all of us and many of your neighbors, many of your family. They are asking questions they've never asked before. And they they long for connection. They long for community. They, They long for satisfaction. They've tried a lot of stuff this last year. didn't work. We'll invite them to church. Come to church and let's be the kind of people 
that truly points people to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, that's our ask. That's what we want to ask. This is an evangelistic prayer today. We're doing baptism next week. Let's pray this this week. Would you make us that kind of church? We want to be a light in the darkness. We want to be a city on the hill. We're not like the world around us. In fact, we're willing to rethink things in the name of love. We want to have cruciform beauty. We don't want to look like everyone. We want to be connected to people. We want to know people. But we want to be distinct and different because, Jesus, you're so different. And you're so much better and you're so much more beautiful. And honestly, the only hope for transformation, for peace in this world, Jesus is you. So would we be the kind of church that leads in our communities? Would we be evangelistic in the ways that you are calling us to, to lovingly point people to you? But Jesus, I'm, I'm not overly concerned with attendance here at Crossview. I think there's so many ways you can grow us, but I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask that you would bring people here who don't know you and that we would have the right character to be used by you to see people enter into your kingdom. Jesus, even maybe right now as we're praying, there's people here who maybe it's their first time online or with us and there's something about you that just feels right. There's a hope. There's a deep sense of conviction and a need to confess sin. And there's a sense that you don't have to live in shame or guilt or fear anymore. That your forgiveness is real. Jesus, we, we want to be a place where life change happens. And not just people we don't know, but our lives too. We need to change too. Would you make us that kind of people? We show people a new way to be human. Your way, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.